My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Lynn Golliker, Carmen Poulain, and Gary Kinsman. In this era, when state recognition of same-sex marriage feels ordinary and old hat, and when there is a dashing young prime minister who'll march in any pride parade that'll have him, it can be easy to forget that it was not long ago at all that the Canadian state took a very different stance towards desire and relationships enacted between people of the same gender. For decades, gay men, lesbians, and other queer people in the federal public service and in the Canadian armed forces were at risk of being fired if their sexual orientations became known. More than that, the Canadian state invested extensive resources in sustained campaigns of targeted surveillance, interrogation, and harassment in order to identify lesbians and gay men and purge them from the public service and the military. In the decades that these vicious purge campaigns were in place, thousands of women and men lost their jobs and had their careers taken from them. Some were outed to their families and communities, many had their lives utterly ruined, more than a few ended up committing suicide. And in addition to the trauma they inflicted on individuals, these purge campaigns by the Canadian state were one way in which LGBTQ people were expelled from the fabric of the nation, that is, materially constituted as not properly belonging, and they were also one way in which the relations of the closet, or of the double life, were socially organized. Lynn Golliker is a military veteran and an assistant professor at Laurentian University in Sudbury, Ontario. Carmen Poulain is an associate dean in the Faculty of Arts at the University of New Brunswick and also Golliker's partner. And Gary Kinsman is a radical queer and anti-capitalist activist and a retired professor of sociology. All three have done extensive research in specific areas related to the purge campaigns and to LGBTQ experiences in the public service and military, and all three are members of the We Demand an Apology Network. We Demand an Apology initially formed in 2015 and has grown steadily since then. It's comprised primarily of people who were targets of the purge campaigns, as well as people like the three interview participants who have done related research and also other supporters. The foundation of its work, and of its ability to put pressure on governments, is the way that it has brought together people who have been directly affected to talk about their experiences, and to collectively take action. The network started out by supporting a number of ultimately unsuccessful motions put forward by the NDP during the tail end of Stephen Harper's Conservative government, and more recently they focused on putting pressure on Justin Trudeau's Liberals, through media work, meeting with MPs, and public events. As well, this year they've been meeting with pride committees across the country and building support for the idea that Liberal Party use of pride celebrations as photo opportunities should be made contingent on finding a just resolution to the legacy of the anti-LGBTQ purge campaigns in Canada. For the network, a just resolution has several components. They're demanding a full, public, official state apology, 
they're demanding redress in the form of financial compensation, and they're demanding the expungement of civilian and military criminal records for consensual sex between people of the same gender that came about because of the purge campaigns. As things stand now, the Liberal government has agreed to issue some kind of apology by the end of the year. It's unclear whether that apology will go far enough, and it's also unclear whether the government intends to address the other demands of the network. For the moment, the network is waiting, ready to respond when the Liberals make their move. If necessary, they will keep up the pressure until all of their demands are met. And regardless, they're committed to ensuring that this shameful piece of Canadian history is remembered, talked about, and never, ever repeated. And Lynn Gallagher, um, an assistant professor at Laurentian University and an ex-military member, retired 16 years in the military. I did my PhD a lot on the military. My name is Karen Poulin. I'm an associate dean in the Faculty of Arts at the University of New Brunswick. And in collaboration with Lynn Gallagher, we carried out a longitudinal study on gays and lesbians in the military around the year 2000, but it was a longitudinal study which lasted about 10 years. So my name is Gary Kinsman. I'm a retired professor from Laurentian University. I've done a lot of research on the national security campaigns, the purge campaigns against lesbians and gay men in Canada. And as a result of that, connected with a number of people who were purged, both in the public service and the military. And I guess to put in place where the We Demand an Apology Network comes from, which we're all members of, in terms of those of us participating in this interview. In 2015, I met with Paul Richard, Martin Roy, and some other people in Montreal, and we decided to set up the We Demand an Apology Network. At that point in time, we were supporting a number of NDP motions put forward by Libby Davies, Craig Scott, Randall Garrison, and perhaps a couple of others. And we held a media conference in June of 2015, along with the NDP, to call for an apology and to call for support for their private members' bills. So that's where the network comes from. The network is basically made up of three different components. Most significant for me is people who were directly affected by the purge campaigns, people who lost their jobs or lost their careers as a result of the purge campaigns. Then there's groups of people, and all three of us and the interviewers that are part of this group, people who've done research on these questions and are clearly supportive of those people who were purged. And then there's just other people who were supportive of the people who were purged who were part of our network. The three things we're united around are the call for an official public state apology for the purge campaigns against LGBT people, the call for redress for all of those people who were directly affected by those purge campaigns, and also the expungement of criminal code convictions for people who were charged with consensual homosexual activity, both prior to 69 and after. So that's sort of what the network is and where it comes from. Maybe I can also add, Lynn mentioned that she was in the military for 16 years, so she experienced that climate for those years of anti-homosexuality. And just so people know, Lynn and I are also partners, and so I was a partner of somebody who was living with that kind of climate during those years. There's been prohibitions on homosexuals and various terms have been used over the years from sex deviants to sex perverts. In the military, starting in World War II, when people could be purged for being psychopathic personalities with abnormal sexuality, to the more modern period of the purge campaign, which starts in 1958 
in the public service and the military. In the military, you have internal purge policies against people engaged in same-gender sex that continue to exist from World War II on. But starting in 58, you now have new national security policies that are supposedly based on homosexuals suffering from a, quote, character weakness that supposedly makes us vulnerable to blackmail from, and I'm being facetious here, evil Soviet agents. In terms of the people that I've talked to, and Patricia Gentile, my co-author for the Canadian War on Queers, the only people that ever tried to blackmail them in terms of people who were directly affected was the RCMP themselves. So thousands of people were affected by these purge campaigns in the public service and in the military and the RCMP and CSIS. They lasted for decades. They were mandated by the security panel under the jurisdiction of the cabinet. So they came down from the highest levels of the Canadian state. As I said, thousands of people were affected. They were affected in multiple different ways that we can go into. And in a certain sense, the campaign didn't officially end until 1992, when the military was finally forced to drop its policy prohibiting lesbians and gay men from being members. Obviously, informal practices of discrimination continue after that. So thousands of people were put under surveillance. Thousands of people lost their jobs during this period of time. And that's what we're calling for an apology and redress around. Yeah, the military has had different versions of its laws against sexual orientation other than heterosexuality in the military up until 1992. It became more coordinated and over the years, because of the Cold War, much more vicious as well during the, the 70s, 80s, and well, the 90s. It ended in 1992. And there were numerous people, whether they were suspected or had a propensity, whatever that means, a propensity, they were investigated. A lot of them lost their jobs. Some of them survived and were still affected through the years by that. And some people committed suicide as well in suffering through those investigations as well. The Special Investigation Unit was a unit responsible to interrogate, investigate, and recommend the release of many, many military members for homosexuality. One didn't have to be proven to be homosexual during those years. They just had to be suspected of homosexuality. Many of them during interrogation were lied, they were coerced, they were tricked, they used up their resistance in terms of the strategies that the military used to break them down so that sometimes they admitted being homosexual. That was the terminology that was used. And they would do so to stop the angst because they were followed, their phones were tapped. The military knew a great deal and went to great lengths to be able to document in detail everything about them. And as Gary said, they were blackmailed by them that they would you know, come out to their families for them. So if the person wasn't out to their families, they would be affected in that way, et cetera. So it was a really, really traumatic time and scary time for people in the military during that period. I might also add that it didn't only affect the individuals in the military, but of course their family, their partners, et cetera. So it was a time of witch hunt and of fear, of paranoia, and justified paranoia, if you will, because their livelihood was threatened. 
We had a participant that comes to mind, which illustrates really well some of the effect of that kind of treatment. That person was in their early 60s, and they had been kicked out of the military when they were very young, like 23 or 22. And what was amazing and why this really illustrates the impact of it is that that individual was talking to us and for the first time telling anyone about the experience he had gone through about being released in the military after being caught in the act, caught with his boyfriend. And to that day, he couldn't talk about it to anyone until he spoke to us. We had people that told us that throughout their career that they've had outside the military, that for years, every day, they get up in the morning and think, you know, I wish I could have had my career in the military. And the sense of actualization that these people were robbed from is also really sad especially in the late 70s and into the 80s, it was routine for the military to interrogate people about their sexual practices. And oftentimes for, for lesbians or women in the military, what this meant was that male military intelligence officers from the SIU would be interrogating them about, you know, have you engaged in oral sex? I mean, they would actually use much cruder terms than this over and over again. Darl Wood, who's a member of our network, describes this as basically a verbal sexual assault that she experienced in the late 1970s. Military intelligence would do surveillance of community institutions to see if there were any military members who went in and out of bars and clubs. It's also important to point out that people, especially later on, weren't necessarily purged overnight. Sometimes they actually lost their position. So Stefan Serard was actually moved in the military from being involved in the military police to sweeping floors, right? So in a certain sense, he was actually outed to everyone on that military base. And it's also important to point out that it was fairly standard for violence, sometimes even sexual violence, to take place against lesbians in the military, often condoned by the leadership, and also physical violence against people in the military. Now, in terms of the public service, this had major impacts on people's lives. All sorts of divisions of the Canadian government were affected by this purge campaign, and people would be confronted by accusations that they were homosexual, and then they would lose their security clearance and usually lose their position. Later on, they might be frozen out of any advancement, and we certainly have heard stories of people who, once they were identified as being gay, their positions just magically disappeared in the public service, so their career was totally destroyed. So, given that there is no evidence of any actual basis to the claimed security rationale for the purge campaigns, why did all of this actually happen? Here I'm going to be largely giving my personal perspective, not the perspective of the We Demand and Apology Network, which hasn't really discussed this question in any detail. So the official explanation of the purge campaign and the public service that also impacted on the military was that we supposedly suffered, as I said before, from a so-called character weakness that made us vulnerable to blackmail from agents of foreign powers, right? 
that rationale was absolutely no evidence in the Canadian context that anyone ever gave any national security information to agents of the Soviet Union or anything else, right? The only people who experienced blackmail were LGBT people who the RCMP and military intelligence tried to blackmail into giving the names and identities of their friends and colleagues and people they met at parties and so on. So that was the official rationale. It did occur in the context of the Cold War. And it's also important to remember that, especially coming out of the United States, homosexuals were seen as sort of fellow travelers of communists or leftists because they also defied sort of gender and sexual boundaries, not so much the political boundaries, but they were sort of seen as fellow travelers. But if you look at the implications of the campaign in Canada, what this meant was the national security regime constructed only heterosexuality and a male-dominated heterosexuality at that as the normal national safe sexuality. Those of us who expressed our sexualities in other ways, outside the context of institutionalized heterosexuality, were deemed to be threats to national security, were expelled from the fabric of the nation, lost our civil rights and democratic rights, and security practices were mandated against us in similar ways to how other groups throughout Canadian history have been expelled from the fabric of the nation and had national security practices mobilized against them. So in terms of national security practices, they have a role to play in constructing sexuality as well. So during this period of time, these national security practices, the pushing of lesbians and gay men back into the closet, constructing relations of a double life after people had become a little bit more public and visible, was actually part of constructing these relations of the closet, part of constructing what I would describe as heterosexual hegemony in the Canadian context and organizing the oppression of lesbians and gay men. And obviously this intersects with the oppression of women, the oppression of trans people, the oppression of all sorts of other groups of people as well. So in that sense, it's actually part of trying to construct a particular notion of what Canada was that was heterosexual in character, and that's something that's a real problem for everyone who doesn't fit into that sort of notion of a male-dominated institutionalized heterosexuality. It also reified, you know, made it into something that was unquestioned, what kind of soldiers we were supposed to have. It supported the traditional masculine warrior kind of identity providing a place for young men to practice this masculinity without having any challenge to it by the sheer presence of someone who would be said to be gay. The presence of women also complicates matter when we want to maintain that stereotype, that idea of the masculine warrior. And I think that's threatening for an organization such as the military. Like Gary, this is, you know, my perspective on this. Into the Cold War, there was a lot of fear and hype. That fear and hype was really strong within the military, not just in society, but hyper-contextualized within the military world itself because they are the ones that's providing national security. So everything becomes much more important or much more fearful in the military context. And I would go so far to say as if you introduce all of that plus a policy that allows an organization to officially and quote-unquote legally to discriminate against a vulnerable group, then it offers them an opportunity to practice skills that they wouldn't otherwise have anybody to practice them on i.e. homosexuals or people that didn't quite fit the normal sexuality, the masculine heterosexuality of the military. 
it offers them an enemy to practice their skills on. So the Special Investigative Unit of the military, the military police, they were practicing, what if we found an enemy? What if we found somebody that was a traitor to our country? Well, here we have an enemy, we've created an enemy, and we have people to practice it on, homosexuals. In terms of national security, I just wanted to mention, I mean, one thing I think all of us would share is that we really need to ask critical questions about national security, like which nation is being defended and whose security is actually being defended. Because certainly these were practices that defended very powerful social institutions and institutionalized heterosexuality and masculinity and what might be able to be suggested were patriarchal relations. But certainly these practices were directed against the everyday lives and security of thousands of people within the Canadian state. So we always have to remember that we have to ask critical questions about national security and not just take it for granted because major crimes against human and democratic rights have been launched under the rubric of this is supposedly defense of national security. And with respect to the military, I think it went on for so many years and with such viciousness because you have to remember our Canadian military is still rests today a closed society. We just can't easily see what's going on behind all those doors. And they hide it behind as Gary's talking about, and really we must remember that, Gary, this idea of national security. They close their walls. The military is a total institution, and it easily closes its walls to outside scrutiny, even though it's under civil society and we control it, supposedly. They still have all kinds of ways legally to close their doors, to vision, to openness, to transparency that doesn't exist today, let alone 20 years ago or 30 years ago or 40 years ago. Tell me more about the We Demand an Apology Network, about its founding and what it's been doing over the last couple of years. So I was the person who was there of the three of us at the very founding of the network. We had a meeting in Montreal that, as I mentioned before, included Paul Richard, who was purged from the public service, Martin Roy, who was purged from the military, and a number of supporters. And we decided that something had to be done about this. At that point in time, the central focus was an apology, and that's why the name emerged, We Demand an Apology Network. Now, fairly quickly after that, through Martine and other people, I think Lynn and Carmen got involved in the network, and more and more people who had been purged or directly affected by the campaigns got involved. So we initially supported these NDP motions. Unfortunately, they went nowhere, but they did raise the issue publicly, opened up a space for this. And then the Liberal government gets elected, and we continue to put pressure on them. But it's really a combination of more and more people who were directly affected coming out, some publicly, some not, but participating in our network who create the basis for the Liberal government to begin to move. John Ibbotson's articles in the Globe and Mail play an important role also in opening that up. And eventually we get some commitments from the Liberal government, but they're very vague. And finally, we got the commitment last spring when we started to go to Pride committees and raise questions about you know, whether Trudeau should just get a blank check for coming to Pride at these media ops or whether he should be asked more critical questions about why he hasn't come through on the apology and redress yet. Then they made the commitment to have it by the end of this year. We're a broad-ranging network across the entire Canadian state. We have people in Whitehorse. We have people on the Gulf Islands in BC. We have lots of people on the East Coast. But we are largely an email-based network because we don't have lots of resources and we're all volunteers in terms of this committee. So we try to do what we can and we operate as much as we can on a consensus-based decision-making system. The network is still open to new members, so if anybody wants to join, they can just 
find us on the internet and ask to join. Quite a few members have been involved in doing, you know, Gary extensively, Carmen and I, but also just the members themselves that have been hurt by these past experiences have been publicly involved as well. So for some of them, it becomes a way or a means to where they can have their voice out there and heard as well, which is really important in this. So I just wanted to mention that, you know, we're still there, we're still fighting and we're still moving on. And I think it's important that Canadian society not just give an apology. An apology sounds like a one-shot deal, like the government's going to stand up before the end of this year and they're going to apologize and then we're going to go away and that's going to be the end of it and the nation can go back to sleep and bury their heads in the sand once more and forget that this ever happened. I hope that this goes on beyond an apology. We need to have a continual remembrance that something so horrible was done to these people that was done that was the equivalent of torture, that was practiced upon them. We have to remember that from this day forward. Otherwise, we're just going to forget, and it's going to happen again, possibly. And I don't want that to happen again to anybody, to any group. We want to continue to raise our concerns. We've given a text of what the points are that we want to see in the apology. We're going to continue to raise this with the media. I mean, we're probably not going to even hear anything about what's the content of the apology until it's delivered. We will be present when the apology is delivered in whatever form and context that happens, whatever venue. And obviously, we will give our response to it as a network, both as individuals and collectively as a network, if we can formulate our response to that. And we'll have to take it from there, like whether it's going to be acceptable to us. We can't really predetermine that. And our concerns are not simply about the apology. They also include a redress process, and they also include the expungement of criminal code convictions. So I'm sure we will be raising our concerns into the future. I think it's important to remember how we got here. It's not out of the goodness of the liberal government's heart that we've got here. Obviously, there's a difference between the Stephen Harper regime before and the liberal government. But we got here because people have organized. People have created spaces. People have created support networks for themselves, people who were perched in the military, especially. And it's out of that organizing that we're now closer than ever to getting the type of apology that we hope we're going to get. And we're also closer than ever to getting redress, I hope, and also the expungement of criminal code convictions. But it's actually out of people organizing and talking about their experiences and sharing their experiences that we've got to where we are. And that seems to me to also be a little bit of a suggestion on where we need to go in the future. We need to actually continue to organize and to talk about the experiences of people who were detrimentally affected to ensure that this no longer can happen to lesbians and gays and LGBT people, but also that it can't happen to any other group of people in Canadian society as well. You have been listening to my interview with Lynn Golliker, Carmen Poulain, and Gary Kinsman of the We Demand an Apology Network. To learn more about their work, Search for We Demand an Apology Network with your favorite search engine. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to suggest topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week.